As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Stoffel Van Dorn wins and takes the championship lead. Mixed reactions to the Generation 3 car unveiling, the unexpected return of Sam's calendar update, and a butcher's hook at some inter-team politics. This is the Race Formula E podcast, Monaco E pre-edition. Hello and welcome to a pack show today. Following a bumper weekend of action, we've got plenty to get our teeth into. Um, and I'm your host, Andrew Vandenberg. And to help me chew through the gristle is the race Formula E guru and butcher's boy, Sam Smith, and our special guest, former Audi Formula E Wagyu master, Alan McNish. Alan, it's great to have you back on the show. How did it feel to have Formula E racing through your hometown streets, uh, not yet not having any involvement in the proceedings? Yeah, thanks very much, Andy. Um, it was very relaxing, much more relaxing than previous years. Uh, I was able to wander down, enjoy a bit of sunshine, have a chat, not have to rush to debrief meetings or anything else. And and I actually wandered home and had a cup of tea whilst watching it on the sofa. So a very relaxed affair. It's all very civilised. Yes. Um, Sam, as I mentioned in the intro, there's so much to get through in this episode. Uh, we might struggle to cram it all in, but I guess the place to start is with race winner Stoffel van Dorn. This was one of the more strategic triumphs we've seen in Formula E. So explain um, how he and Mercedes pulled this one off. Well, very deftly is the answer. It was a combination of strong pace, stealthy energy management, and, and just executing a really a really strong event. Um Stoffel was happy to sit in the leading train for the first 10 laps or so behind Vern's Diesta Cheetah. And I think, you know, he's just sort of surveying the landscape of what was going on. And I think that's part and parcel of how Formula E races are done this season, especially. That's a bit of a legacy of the the qualifying qualifying format. But also, it's the last season. How many times have we said this? It's the last season of a, a rule set. So it's extremely tight. Every margin is extremely tight. And I think... Not only was Van Dorn patient, but he also got the moves done when he needed to do them. There was one on Frines, there was one on Evans going to the new Velshi Kane. So, you know, he, he actually got stuck in and got those moves made. But I think the bigger picture was how Van Dorn and Mercedes just read the race. Yes, we don't, you know, I mean, we don't know if Verlein would have been able to maximise what he had and what he'd created for himself. But I think Van Dorn really just. He got everything together. I think he hit the ground running in FP1. It wasn't perfect. You know, he had some struggles in FP1, but overcame them. And he just he just got it together, was feisty when he needed to be. But as I said, this season especially, not getting feisty in that first half of the race is a big part of, of executing these victories. So, you know, Evans, I mean, Mitch Evans, I think we'll come on to a little bit, but the fact that he was 2% or almost 2% down at the mid part of the race tells you everything about sitting in that train and, and using the slipstream to maximum effect. So from Van Dorn's side, I think from his side of the garage, just a, a super well-run event and, and plainly had a good car underneath him. So, yeah, fair play to Stoffel. He, he, he got the maximum points, and remarkably, it's the first one for a year, which seems incredible when you, you think of Stoffel and, and Mercedes and the package they have. Alan, what did you make of the way the various tactics were deployed and how have you seen um, formally evolve tactically now since they've changed the qualifying system 
Well, I think, first of all, the qualifying system is a much more fair uh, scenario than what it was last year and the previous years, which was, it was like Las Vegas. It was a pure lottery uh, where you ended up and uh, quite frustrating at times for drivers and teams. I'm sure for the fans at home, uh, if they were supporting someone, then it was a positive side. But I think overall, this one is a better way to look at it. It maybe doesn't, though, help the teams at the back because it doesn't give them that random effect that um, they maybe had in the past. However, I would say for the majority, it's, a, it's an overall improvement. What I saw was that Mitch Evans coming on the back of the two wins in Rome, where the Jaguar has been very, very good in the past, and it also has been good here in Monaco, was uh, in top form. However, he was making a big hole in the air for everybody else to sit behind him. And as you said, he was 2% less in energy, which is absolutely critical at the end. And uh, he then had to try to get that back. And the only way to do it was to lift earlier, to conserve more, consume less. And that meant slower lap time. And he dropped back into the pack at one point. And uh, I think to some extent was saved a little bit by the safety car. uh, Or ultimately, it could have been a little bit worse for him. You know, Nick Cassidy was on the other end. He came from the back coming through very well. But the one I felt for out of it all was Pascal Verlein because uh, he was in, I think, extreme form, very, very good with Florian Modlinger, who was with us in the previous few years, jumping across to Stuttgart side of things. I think it's given them a real structure. And, uh, you know, Verlein's making the best of it. And I think his strategy was nice and neat because when he needed to, he pushed into the attack mode, dropped only one place. Then he was able to use his attack mode cleanly to get past and then um, break and make a gap from there. Sam, um, Alan picked up on uh, on Mitch Evans' race there. Um, it's a Jaguar in a, a rich vein of form now. Well, certainly that car, but uh, Sam Bird in the second car is having a really difficult time of it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to him at length after the race and he was brutally honest about his, his last few races. Um, you know, he didn't hold back. He knows he's got to get things together a bit more than he has been doing. Seems to have slightly struggled with qualifying. I mean, he was only a fraction off getting through to the quarterfinals at Monaco. But yeah, he was, you know, Sam was super down. I don't think I've seen him that down, actually. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was proper heaven knows I'm miserable now stuff for him. I mean, he was just down in the dumps. But, you know, he'll fight back. He always does. The, the problem that Sam has got is that Mitch is now 50 points ahead of him in the standings. I mean, isn't that incredible when you consider that Mitch got one point from the first three races? And then three races further on, he's, he's third in the championship and 50 ahead of, of Sam Bird. So, I mean, one thing we do know about Sam, just revisiting that, is that he's a, he's a proper fighter. I mean, I think, you know, case study one was New York City last year when he binned it in the, in the, uh, on the first day, did the tub and then came back and won the race. So you never discount Sam Bird. So it wouldn't surprise me if he, if he fought back pretty strongly and, I think it's uh, at Berlin, you know, he was able to to put something special together. Alan, as a driver, that's got to be worst case scenario, isn't it? When your teammates on fire and you're struggling for form, how, how do you deal with that? Well, I, I was never in that situation, Andy. I don't know how you can even <laughs> consider it. It's not just for the driver, it's for the team as well. Because, uh, you know, we're talking about the 50 points in the driver's championship, but from a Jaguar perspective, they need both of uh, the bullets in their gun to be competitive in the team's championship. And uh, they're, at the moment, 26 behind the leaders being Mercedes, who definitely have got two guys that can perform. And so in that respect, I think it's it's very, very tough. It can be changed very quickly, one direction or another. It just needs one good result. And it's quite clear Sam can fight back. We know his speed. We know his potential. We know his capability. He's got the experience. He has jumped into Mitch Evans's front room, though, because Mitch has been there since, what is it, season three? He understands the team. He understands exactly the way the car works, and he is in a rich vein of form right now. But uh, as I said, it can swing so easily, as it did in Mexico, where the Jaguars were, well, woeful, to be honest with you, to going to Rome, where they were absolutely dominant. So, you know, we go to Berlin next, and uh, that's a, a circuit that historically maybe has swung not in their favour. And so I could see it being, from a team perspective, an up-and-down season. Um, But certainly, they need Sam, and Sam needs Sam to be able to score some good points. And I just hope it starts in Berlin. Sam, another team where there's sort of mixed fortunes going on at the moment is uh, Diaz Chichita. 
Uh, Jean-Eric Verne was a very strong third, got a little bit unlucky with that safety card timing. Um, but he's really got the upper hand over Antonio Felix da Costa at the moment. Yeah, seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, the results speak for themselves. Um, I think Dak, as he's known, was just really a bit off the boil in Rome. Certainly, I've never known him to be so sort of inconsequential at Rome. It was quite strange, but he was better in Monaco. You know, he was a bit more on it in Monaco, the place that he'd won 12 months previously. I don't know if the move to Porsche for next season has turned his head a little. I'm not sure. I mean, it does sometimes happen like that, doesn't it, with drivers? But I think generally Antonio is experienced enough for that not to interfere too much in the way that he thinks and the way that he goes about his business. I think in Monaco he was, if anything, a little conservative. I mean, it's it's a really fine balance, isn't it, in Formula E this season? You know, do you... You know, do you allow yourself? Do you indulge yourself to get sucked into those early race fights, or do you just stand back and, you know, take the chance of relinquishing relinquishing a position or two, but then getting offline and and losing more and just getting completely shafted that way? I mean, it's it's a really fine line to 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 sort of straddle when you you're down in the sort of lower reaches of the top ten. So, I think that's exactly what happened to him in Monaco. He that whole paradox really got him. And I think, you know, he got embroiled with a fight with Roland and Dennis. I mean, there, there's a there's an interesting scrap for you, Roland and Dennis. I mean, that that was always going to uh, be a bruising encounter. And so it proved it was a really hairy moment when, I don't know if the cameras caught it properly, but Roland got him up the hill at Massenet and it was super close to a, to a big shunt up there. But but the Mahindra got through, you know, De Costa had to take avoiding action. He all got a bit messy, but he did still come through and got that fine fifth place. So good points for Diaz to Cheetah. But I think I think Antonio, yeah, he just uh, there's something kind of missing at the moment. But I think it's just that fact that in the races he seems to be slightly too conservative, or certainly was at Monaco. But I'm I'm, I'm sure that'll come back to him. Yeah, but the interesting thing from my point of view is when you look at the championship perspective, and it's nearly halfway through now. And he's so far behind in the points that if Antonio, and it's the same for Sam as well, they can start to throw a little bit of caution to the wind. I wouldn't say just chuck it in there and hope that they don't have an accident, but certainly they they have to be more aggressive if they want to be anywhere near the top four or five in the points at the end of the season. And so there is a turning point coming where I think uh, they'll have a little bit of a look in the mirror and uh, try and understand exactly what they need to do. But there is also another point, is that maybe there's just something, some feeling, some tiny little detail, and it's losing them a little bit of confidence, especially in that qualifying format as it is at the moment. Alan, uh, you mentioned uh, Nick Cassidy's drive earlier. It was another really strong showing from Envision Racing. Uh, Mm. Robin Frines was was four for making some solid moves there. Uh, How much pride do you take in seeing that Audi powertrain running at the front, and how good a job is that team doing? Well... Quite a lot of pride because at the end of the day, I'm still running the company that's uh, supplying it to to Envision. Uh, but we knew they were a strong team. That was the reason that I signed them up in the first place and, and back in season, uh, the end of season three, beginning of season four. And so we knew they were going to be good at the same time as well. If we take it last year, they scored exactly the same number of points than us, less wins. And so we finished higher up in the championship. And uh, the powertrain is basically the same. We are still supporting. It was important for us, even though as a factory team we were pulling out, that we were able to put in place all the infrastructure to make sure that they still had a very strong and competitive season. And it is good to see it. Certainly, Robin has been super consistent through qualifying and delivering good points. He's kind of like a silent assassin sitting in there. I thought he was going to get bundled out of it uh, halfway through the race when he sort of got pushed down the field a bit, but then came back to a strong uh, fourth position in the race. And those points will be crucial at the end of the year because just looking at him, he's been pretty constantly in and around that sort of podium uh, fourth position. And uh, that's what will bring it. But on the other side of it, Nick. Nick struggled a little bit with um, some confidence, I think, there in Monaco. And uh, in the race, it certainly clicked for him and he had a great drive through the field. Used the energy very, very well. Strategically, it ran for him. And uh, he got some points on the board. So I think going to Berlin, where historically our car has been extremely good in the past, then it, it should be quite good for Envision. Do you think they can win the championship, Alan? I don't see any reason why not. Um, when we're talking about the championship, I think it, you know, there in, if you look in the driver's championship, Robin is in a great position. He's driving very well. He's keeping his nose clean. We know he's a scrapper when he needs to be. 
And I think that uh, that one definitely is is on the cards. I think if you talk about the team's championship, then, as I said before, you do need two drivers that are able to fight all of the time. Now, they're fourth in the team's title. It's not as if they're out of it. But uh, you really, over the course of a full season, you need two bullets in that particular gun. And so, therefore, they will be obviously very keen and are very keen to make sure that Nick is on the level of performance that we've seen in the past on a more regular basis. The, the other thing with Envision, which I think will put them in good stead, is that unlike a lot of those around them in the points table, they won't be in this constant race, test, race, test uh, situation mm. from June until August. So that might, I'm pretty sure that will count for them. I mean, do you agree with that, Alan? Do you think it will actually free them up to concentrate more on the races and just be sharper? Yes, because it is actually a heck of a workload for teams that are going uh, through the development, testing, development, then homologation cycle for the season nine car. And uh, that in, you know, if you take into account the next races in Bern, then you've got Jakarta, you've got New York. These are all flyaway races. So that's uh, basically eight days out of your week. Um, and wait, out of your week, it sounds stupid, but it's it's a full time uh, before you then jump to the next test. And you've got to prepare that in the background. And so it's quite a lot of work for these teams. And EVR um, will be able to just focus clearly on the one job, which is the championship. And then later on, when they get their car, their customer car, uh, then they'll be picking it up from there. But right now, they've got the speed. They've had four out of six fastest laps in the races so far. So we know that's definitely there. And uh, they're just... Tight, ticking up little details here and there and I think the package will be strong going into the next period. Sam, um, next up is a former Audi driver, Lucas Degrassi, who was uh, sick for Rocket Venturi. Uh, after the race, his teammate, Eduardo Mortara, described him as the Butcher of Monaco. What was that all about? Well, it's a bit of a misquote. It was the, the Butcher of Formula E. Yeah, he didn't mess about. He went oh, the whole... sorry, the Butcher of Formula E? Yeah, no, he went the full, the full, uh, the full way on it. Um, Yes, interesting one. Um, I think when we did the preview with Gary Paffitt, we, um, we we sort of thought that there would be some fireworks between these two, such quick, competitive, driven people who are you know are proven winners in Formula E. There was always something that was going to kick off, and it certainly did, just coming out of the tunnel. I mean, first of all, the race. I mean, they were both driving pretty good races. Lucas qualified fifth and was, was running in that sort of tail end of the lead pack, and, and Eduardo came up through the field after a difficult qualifying to, to latch onto his teammate's tail. And that's where the trouble began. I mean, unfortunately, and I don't know how many times we've seen this this season, which is really frustrating, is that the incident was completely missed and there was there was no replays. I've been told that there is no footage of this incident, which I find that's really astonishing. <laughs> um, yeah, I just find it very strange. I don't know if maybe maybe Jerome or Susie found it and sort of buried it in the in the harbour or something. I don't know. Uh, but uh, there, it, it appears that there was a tag coming out of the tunnel, uh, quite a sort of subtle one, uh, and it punctured Eduardo's, um, Eduardo's rear tyre. So... That was terminal. He turned around and, and that was the end of his afternoon. And they were in such a good position. I think they were running sixth and seventh at that stage. And, and uh, you know, they could they could easily have jumped uh, De Costa. I'm sure that Mortaro would have done, certainly. And, and Lucas was there or thereabouts. Um, came to the uh, media pen and the description, which we've just talked about, was made. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, headline friendly, isn't it? I think Eduardo was still... Um, extremely uh, fired up from the incident. Um, he didn't appreciate that, nor neither did the team. I spoke to Jerome D'Ambrosio, who made himself available and was extremely honest about it. And I thought very, um, very considered and, and, and very strong in what he said. You know, he said that it was unacceptable, which of course it is. It's the cardinal sin, isn't it? Uh, two teammates hitting each other and, and losing all those points. I mean, what compounds it is just the embarrassment from the perspective of it being the home race. Um, that's for sure. When you mix in the, let's say the uh, the reputation that, that that Lucas has cultivated over the years of a no nonsense uh, driver who isn't afraid to get his sleeves rolled up and a bit more, um, yeah, it um, it wasn't a fantastic episode. But uh, I think in terms of yeah, and the other thing to point out, which is probably the most important, is that uh, Lucas notified me via a message on Saturday evening that he's a vegetarian, and he's done that publicly now, so we can say that uh, Lucas is a vegetarian. So I think we've spent all our uh, butchery 
puns in the first at uh, the top of the show vdb anyway i got as many in as i possibly could although i've got a final one i mean alan you've worked with lucas for many years but did you ever see him with a cleaver and a rack of ribs <laughs> i'm trying to think back on that particular one yeah i see Look, Lucas is definitely aggressive. The interesting thing that Sam said there was if it was a puncture on the back of Edo's tyre, it suggests that uh, Edo had overtaken Lucas because the on the television, the last I saw was that uh, Edo was joining the back of Lucas because he was on attack mode. And so it sounds like he had actually overtaken him when the collision had uh, occurred itself. But look, the thing from my perspective is both Edo and Lucas are actually quite similar. Both are very, very committed, both pretty aggressive. And when you hire a tiger, you know, you, you expect maybe to get nipped every now and then. And between the two of them, and we haven't seen the footage, so it's, you know, it's wrong to sort of pull judgments on it. But uh, at this stage of the season, it's far too early to have these sort of incidents. If it's the last race of the season and they're fighting out for, you know, first, second or third, both of them together, then, yeah, you can understand it. But at this stage of the season, it is completely unacceptable. And uh, from that perspective, I think the uh, debrief afterwards should have been pretty firm, without question, because it needs to get stopped now. Because if this type of situation uh, festers, it becomes a real difficulty and it divides the team as well. So it's not just necessarily about the two drivers, it's dividing the team. Um, but definitely they're both characters, shall we say, and uh, it would be a spectator sport watching that particular debrief. Lucas actually got taken to the mandatory random doping control after the race. I didn't do the media commitments, which was, uh, Mm. yeah, I think was uh, probably welcomed by some people. (laughs) Yeah, but if if I just take another point on it, and I know I've probably got... Team TB's hat on here. That's the difference between fifth and third in the championship was the points that could have been lost at the weekend. So, you know, we're talking about quite a lot of uh, impact on it. Um, Certainly, if I put my driver's hat on, then I'm very sure that if I'd been in both driver's situation, I would have pointed the finger at someone else. But the only two people that honestly know 100% what happened here are the two drivers involved. They are the ones that feel it. One of them will know instinctively in their stomach whether they were actually on the right side of the line or the wrong side of the line. It was a it was a meaty it was a meaty move. That was for sure. <laughs> I think it's the the only other uh, the only other thing I can recall is that uh, at a press conference, I as Oliver Rowland is from Barnsley, I called one of his moves a Barnsley chop. So I think I think <laughs> we should just leave it at that, shouldn't we? I mean, that's... I, I think we definitely leave it at that. Now, Sam, um, eighth for Sebastian Buemi doesn't sound like much to get excited about, but this is actually an excellent drive from last on the grid. Is the old Buemi back? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because obviously Sebastian's had a really painful um, season and a bit now with the IM03 iteration of the the, the Nissan Formula E car. I think there's there's a lot of caveats in this because they've plainly had serious issues with that car since it uh, it's about a calendar year now that it's been in action it debuted at monaco last year so that it, it's difficult to know because the team actually hasn't said publicly what the problems are we we've written already that the word was some form of uh, oscillation from from the car which was um, causing difficulties from a from a handling and setup perspective but i think there's probably something a bit deeper than that i mean the the speculation we've got to call it that the team haven't come out and said exactly what the problem is but the speculation is that there's something in the powertrain which is causing the issue um, and of course the powertrain is homologated so you know cannot be changed i mean i think it I'm pretty sure it, it still can be changed, but you take a raft of penalties. Is that is that right, Alan? Yes, you can change on two things, on safety grounds and uh, also on reliability, but yeah. you've got to apply to the FIA and then they decide whether it is correct or not. And yeah. ultimately, then you've got a one-month period before it can be implemented. That's right, yeah. And and obviously, you know, the, the assumption is that they, they will have looked at that. I mean, whether they have done or not, they, they won't say. But it is giving severe limitations to what's achievable with that car. I mean, the baffling thing, though, is if you look at certain free practice sessions, which, again, Sebastian is, is very upfront about, particularly in Mexico and also at Monaco. I think he was fifth in, in Monaco free practice one. Um, they're there. They're there on pace. But then it, it just seems to be that when it matters in qualifying and then again in the race, um, they, they really have difficulty. So 
it's it's something pretty quirky. It's something they can't get on top of, and they're quite upfront about the limitations of what they can achieve this season. And I think if ever there is a team that is going to possibly after Monaco or maybe even after Berlin go all in with their Gen three development to the to the disadvantage of of what they've got with the Gen two, then it's going to be. Nissan. So the expectation is that they're not really going to trouble the big points this year, uh, unless there's races of uh, attrition and so forth. Uh, but going back to Sebastian's drive, really, really strong drive. Twenty second to to eighth is is a monumental drive. Yes, he was a little bit lucky. The safety car and a few of those around him just just getting things wrong. Um, you know, his, his teammate um, sort of overspent with energy and had an incident with Nick De Vries late in the race. Um, is the old Sebastian Buemi back? You know, the the question then is, what, did he ever go away, or was it just the car's limitations? It's it's hard to say. I mean, as he often says to me, you don't forget how to drive racing cars overnight, and, and that is true. And from you know, I you know, like Alan, follow the the World Endurance Championship very closely, and what I saw at Sebring was that Sebastian Buemi was the outstanding performer in LMP1 um, within a team that includes Kobayashi, um, Conway, uh, Brandon Hartley, some seriously good some seriously good drivers. So on that evidence, you'd say that actually the, the old Buemi's in there uh, but can't get out. <laughs> He's a bit stuck at the moment. Um, and it's just at the wrong time because people are, are looking around for what they're going to invest in for Gen 3 from a driver's perspective. And um, it's it's a really difficult period for him. But if he keeps performing like that in races with what he's got and gets points, then I think that's possibly all he can, all he can do. And just remind people that, you know, when the, when the situation's right, he can, he can, uh, he can get some big points for you or some points, uh, even with limited resources. If I just maybe jump in there, Sam, just looking at uh, the race, the sector times, Pretty much all of the lap time was lost in the first sector. And when you say about uh, being able to drive, that's breaking into Sandevot and then accelerating out of Sandevot, and that's it. Uh, where he was 15th quickest and half a second off Mortara, who was quickest. But if you look at sector two and sector three, so all the way down the hill through Raskas, through the tunnel, um, then he was actually third quickest, a tenth and a half off. And then if you look in the final sector from Tabak round to the start-finish line, he was fourth overall. Um, a tenth and a half off. So predominantly, it looks to me just on very, very quick view that uh, the first sector up to Casino is where they were losing all of their time. Yeah, which which would indicate something. Yeah, I'm speculating here, but something in the uh, in the powertrain um, inver- inverter capability or something to do with the motors. But like I said, that's speculative. But it's certainly something. I mean, you know, N- Nissan, that, that technical team on the core of it with Vincent Gallardo, someone who Alan knows extremely well uh, for, for many years, it, you know, the capability that they have is huge and they've proven it with race wins and championships with Renault and with Nissan. Nissan have won, won races um, since season five. So, yeah, you know, I think it's just something that's that's gone wrong and they're unable to change it. Just as, as simple as that, really. Well, rounding off the point scorers, uh, Jake Dennis was ninth uh, for Avalanche Andretti and defending champion Nick De Vries. Uh, was the last of scorers in 10th. Outside the points, but worth highlighting, was Dan Tickton, who took 12th for Neo 333 and was described by one observer as hustling the car around the streets like John O'Lacey. Um, Alan, that's quite a comparison. What did you make of his performance? <laughs> it definitely is a comparison, that's for sure. Um, there's, I suppose there are similarities there. Uh, I think, well, this is the first circuit, I think, on the calendar that Dan will have seen before, apart from in a simulator. And he will have uh, seen it in in GP2 and in Formula 2 as it then became. So in that respect, he's got some seat time and understanding where it goes. And that, without doubt, would help him. The Neo team, I think, is generally seems to be a little bit more cohesive uh, what, than what they have been in the past. And uh, we saw that as well with his teammates' performance, uh, which has been, you know... Uh, Probably not quite as consistent as we know from Oliver Turvey that he can be. But ultimately, Dan, I I think, was uh, the one that was on the front foot in the team this particular weekend. And uh, it was a strong drive, you know, as feisty as usual, and got himself up into just outside uh, the actual top 10. So, you know, from that perspective, I could see some points coming. It's, uh, you know, later in the championship. But I think a lot of it from 
any new driver's point of view. And as I said at the beginning with the new qualifying format, it doesn't really allow uh, the teams at the back of the grid to have that sort of roll of the dice and maybe get a higher qualifying slot that Berlin, the next race, usually gave uh, because of massive track evolution. And so it is going to be a tough uphill task for him. But I think noting that uh, it's not necessarily one of the quickest cars, which we know, um, then it was a strong performance. On on that sassy um, comparison of of Dan Tictum and um, and John Alacy, Nigel Beresford, who engineered John Alacy at Tyrrell in that momentous nineteen ninety season, collared me and and uh, sorry, collared the the perpetrator, which was a Mister K Chandhok, <laughs> for saying that. And I don't think he was very impressed. He did it very tongue in cheek. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think you could find anyone more different. Uh, than Dan Tictum and Sean uh, Lacey sure? in character. On the track, on the track, different matter, but off it, certainly not. <laughs> um, Sam, finally, for the, talking about the race, uh, Alan mentioned um, Pascal Wehrlein's performance, but a, a double no score for Porsche. I mean, how damaging is that going to be to their title challenge? Could be very damaging. They went from second to sixth in the standings um so yeah it wasn't terrific uh verline i think i'll echo what alan said extremely you know extremely hard done by he did everything right and then just this out of the blue power failure uh just coming out of mirabeau he had a he actually had a locking a locking break going into mirabeau came out of it with nothing uh, nothing at all. No radio, no dash. Everything just switched off. They they're investigating. I'm, I'm speaking to Florian Modlinger uh, in about an hour's time. So by the time this goes out, um, I'm sure you can read on the race exactly what happened. Well, and uh, Alan, have you got some insight? Have, have you? Uh, have they told you? Well, <laughs> me. Uh, yeah, your old no, friend? <laughs> no, no. Funnily enough, not. <laughs> but I can text Florian if you want. You know, and find out. No, it's look. I think uh, the ones that are a little bit older in this audience will remember that we had a very difficult thing to find in season four, where on Lucas's car, uh, they, we had a failure of the inverter, but uh, we couldn't find what it was because it was only in his car, not on the sister car, not in the test car, not in anything else. And it was like finding a needle in a haystack. So sometimes these things um, are very, very sensitive bits of kit. And it is very difficult to find, but the the team will definitely want and do everything they can to do it because they they've got a performance now, and they've got two cars that are consistently. Andre Lotterer has been much more consistent, and I would have said measured than he was last year. And uh, this is a good chance for them in the second half of the the championship battle. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Okay, that's the race covered off, but arguably the biggest story of the weekend was the unveiling of the Gen 3 car, which will replace the current iteration at the end of the season. Uh, it's fair to say the reaction wasn't universally positive, although I've got to say I'm a lot more positive about it than some people. Um, I think Formula E ought to be bold and different and uh, design certainly that, though maybe it probably doesn't go far enough. Alan, what's your view? I haven't seen the car physically in the flesh, and so I've only seen the pictures of it. It clearly can be, look very different with the different liveries that the teams put out. Um, maybe doesn't naturally look aesthetically beautiful in comparison or different in the way that the Gen 2 car did, but I personally like the Gen 2 car. I know that technically it's a big step forward. They're very happy about how they've been able to package the front recuperation drivetrain 
in there, uh, as well as the fact that uh, they've been, you know, it's obviously got 350 kilowatts of power in the back of it, so it requires a slightly different suspension geometry, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what I have realized after seeing a lot of racing cars and a lot of regulation changes, if it provides good racing, then the fans will maybe not necessarily like it and it won't necessarily go down as their favorite car, but it, that's what it's designed to do is to provide good racing and that's the key to it. And so I think when it goes to its first race, then that will be the true measure of the car as opposed to necessarily a couple of pictures on the internet. I think there's always a tendency on these things for a, an instantaneous negative reaction that then softens over time. But Sam, what's been the overall impression? Uh, as Alan mentioned, the performance specs are certainly very impressive. Yeah, a big, big chunk of power. I think um, the most eye-catching is is how much regen there's going to be possible now, um, especially due to the, the, the MGU at the front of the car. Um, and also the fact that the drivers will, will just be not using any rear brakes at all. I spoke to Alan's former Audi colleague, um, Benoit Trellier, who's the only driver to have driven this car, and, and he was effusive in his praise for it. Um, and that, you know, he wasn't been prodded in the back by any PR people. He was genuinely really, um, really impressed by the power, uh, the response, the way that the Hankook tyres, don't forget that Hankook are replacing Michelin. So there's been a lot of work done in that regard because what the Michelins were really good at was um, surviving the locking episodes which are inherent in, in Formula E and, and not having any deg as a consequence. So the aesthetics, I mean, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? I think there are two things here. First of all, it it, it doesn't look as kind of boxy from the back um, and sort of junior single-seatery, let's say, in real life as it does in some of the imagery that was provided. I think the side, side profile for me isn't flattering at all. I think um, it doesn't look great from the side, but all other angles, I think it's it's pretty decent, and it's um you know it's it's a bit far out. This sort of wedge element from the plan view looks looks really cool. Uh, secondly, they've gone to a an open wheel look, which despite the FIA's tech leader for this project, Alessandro Giliberti, explaining to me last last week that you know this was always the intention, which personally I, I don't really understand because. The single seater prototype, let's say interbreeding of the of the Gen Two car, I thought was just really strong and, and captured the imagination. But look, you know, as uh, well, it made it distinctive, didn't it? You knew instantly. Yes, that it was a Formula yes, car. it did. And of course, you know, open wheel open wheel race cars are, are, are much more draggy and less efficient. So there's that messaging, which is a bit odd, I think. But there you go; it's done now, and they've gone that way. As Sebastian Buemi told me last week, you know, a, a car that is always fast somehow looks good. So, um, you know, yeah. I think that's a natty way to to explain the aesthetics of the thing. Um, the other key things which Alan touched on was the the lightness, the um, the fact that it's going to be a really nimble car. It's it's seven hundred sixty kilograms compared to, I think it's the um, I have to double check this. I think it's eight ninety kilograms now. Yeah, minus the driver. You know, you got the eight eighty kilogram rule for for the driver as well to factor in then there's the dimensions you know it's a it's a tiny wee thing this it's um narrow track shorter wheelbase and uh you know whatever you think about its looks it's it's an impressive package and i think they formed it extremely well and the proof ultimately is in the pudding as alan said but you know it's their, their test driver is a you know is an experienced professional who's been racing for 25 years he's won three le mans and he's won super formula um and he's had a great career so you know i tend to sort of go with him because he's the only one who's actually experienced this thing and he says it's going to be mega and it's going to provide really really close racing so i think in that sense there's a hell of a lot to look forward to well it's going to make the current f1 car look like a tank when uh, when it's put next to it <laughs> i was going to say but ben watrelli he was also one of the drivers that uh, did the development on the gen 2 car so he's got a direct reference between Gen 2 and Gen 3 in that respect. Yeah, I, I think once once we see it on track, and I think the size of it is really important for street racing. And uh, as we've seen, you know, how FE has so much better racing around Monaco than those current massive F1 cars do, then people won't worry so much about whether it looks like a... Uh, Imperial Cruiser from Star Wars or, or whatever. Um, Sam... Prefaced it at the top of the show, but your calendar update is back with a vengeance. So talk us through <laughs> everything that's happening. Yeah, 
I mean, this is good. This might become a sort of thrice weekly thing, right? Now. I don't need my own jingle or something. Um, yeah, where do we start? Vancouver shambles is uh, on my notes here that I've made. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where do you start? It's, a bit it's harsh. Uh, well. I don't, I'm not sure if it's harsh enough if you do, if you consider <laughs> yeah. that it's eight weeks until we should be in Vancouver. And look, you know, there's plainly been something that's gone very awry over there. And um, we, we're going to have a piece shortly on, on the situation of, of what what unfolded over in, uh, in, in Vancouver. It's such a shame because everything that was coming out of the local promoters and, and formerly was that it was going to be um, one of the jewels in the crown of the event and whether it can survive this and come back in 2023 i have my doubts but let's hope it does because i think everybody wants to go over there and get back to canada and go racing because the one event that we've been to in montreal was one of my favorite events um yes i know it had lots of troubles off track but actually on track it was fantastic and um let's hope we can get back there Secondly, you know what's going to happen now in terms of where Formula E goes. It absolutely needs to, has to do 16 races. Uh, from the weekend in Monaco, nothing's been completely confirmed as I as I believe it, but there was a board meeting on the Thursday which looked at the alternatives. And I think as it stands, the alternatives are threefold. Either they have a, an extra bolt-on race at Jakarta, in Indonesia at the beginning of June to make it 16 races, or they go to uh, Marrakesh in early July, possibly on the same date of Vancouver, which is the, the de facto substitute race. And you imagine the heat there at that time of year. It's going to be extremely challenging, possible evening race, you'd suggest. Or the third possibility, which I'm told is, is currently favoured, is that both of those things happen. And then we actually have 17 races. Um, so if, if all the numbers add up and everyone's agreed, that, that could actually be happening. Uh, and there could be essentially two extra races to make up for the Vancouver cancellation. Uh, and that is a second race in Jakarta and then another one in Marrakesh. That looks like the only options available at this stage. So uh, watch this space on what's confirmed there. Part two of the calendar update is um, the news that it looks like, finally... Formula will be going to Brazil uh, for a race in March of next year in Sao Paulo at a track in the Casa Verde Baixa uh, area of the city, just north of the Tietê River. It's in fact the same place where the IndyCar race between 2010 and 2013 took place. I think one's been mooted to happen in Brazil, Brazil since even before the championship started. VDB, you'll remember the, the Rio uh, possibilities. I wish I had a pound for every Brazil race that was <laughs> going to be on the calendar. I, w- I wouldn't be hosting this podcast, that's for sure. Yeah, and then, you know, a few other initiatives sort of flared up, didn't they? I mean, there was the Parkland track that Lucas was was looking at with various people and investors. Uh, there was also one that the PKs were involved if, involved in, in, in yeah. Rio touting that. Yeah, I'm surprised there wasn't an Antonio Pizzonia didn't have a, a jungle a race jungle in Manaus race, yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, um, it'd be great if, you know, if all this happens and uh, we've got to, you know, we've got to caveat this with the fact that nothing will be completely um, confirmed until the World Motorsport Council meeting in June. But the indications are that the, the contracts have been signed and, and everything's agreed to take Formula E to, uh, to back to South America. It'll be the first race since the, the Santiago race in, uh, when was that? 2020 wasn't it just before the pandemic so uh yeah it'll have been three years since we've gone to to south america which uh, if happens will be fantastic alan um you know from your time in fe and all of that how much of a problem has the lack of stability in the calendar been um for brands and and everyone else involved i think it definitely has been and is a problem there's no question uh if you just look at the consistent races on the calendar then the next one being Berlin is probably one of the most consistent through from the beginning of Formula E until to date. But uh, that is in a, a slightly different environment. It's on the old Tempelhof airfield. If you've got a race in the centre of cities, it's got a fantastic attraction. It is the reason that the manufacturers predominantly are involved in Formula E because it is a unique selling point and it's bringing the racing to the fans, bringing your story to the fans as opposed to asking them to drive, you know, 100 miles to to a race circuit. Um, And it's got so many positives. But the negative side of it is there's always a risk because it is always subject to 
outside influences, most of which are political, and most of those political influences come on a four-year MP's term. And so in that respect, I think it is definitely a tough one. And it's a something, if I'm very honest with you, I'm quite happy with most jobs in motorsport, but putting together a calendar, especially for a street racing circuit, then that is not something I would I really envy uh, Formula E at all with, because they're just subject to all of these sort of things. What I eventually did and what we looked at it was accepted that this, to some extent, was part and parcel of the growing pains of the championship. And at the same time, we could always reference the races in Monaco, the races in Rome, Mexico, uh, New York, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, which were key highlight races with the risks of some of these other ones, some which were pandemic related in the last couple of years, some were politically related. Um, but going forward, it's something where I think the majority of the calendar needs to be strong and then the other additions can come and go as uh, as may be necessary at the time. Now, Sam, on top of that, the silly season's also in full swing. Uh, you broke the news earlier this week that Stoffel van Dorn will be joining Jev at Penske. I mean, that's an amazing lineup for that team. It is extraordinary. I mean, the team isn't fully formed yet, of course. I mean, they've not even acknowledged that it's happening, but it is. And um, uh, there's quick work going on, getting Van Dorn signed up. Um, that is for sure. It, it It is, I think, along with probably um, Bird and Evans, um, one of the strongest, if not the strongest, in the, in the championship. So a lot for that new alliance to, to look forward to uh, for next season. Apart from that, I think the the big questions in the driver market are really what's going to happen at McLaren. I mean, there is one seat that we know that's going to be available there, by the way. Just to go back, McLaren, we expect to be uh, confirmed as entering Formula E in, in the coming weeks. There was some speculation that it might happen at Monaco, but we believe that um, it's a, a deferment until later on in May that that is going to be uh, happening. Zach Brown was in Monaco, um, but uh, nothing official yet. The question, of course, about reigning champion Nick De Vries, what will he be doing? I think um, there is a lot of anticipation that he will be offered a drive at Toyota Gazoo Racing in the World of Jones Championship next year. If if he takes that, uh, then the big question is, will he be allowed to to take part in both that and Formula E? I think if there's cal- calendar expansions in both of those championships, it's going to be pretty tricky so lots to sort and flush out there um we're going to have a story uh later on this week about what's happening uh, in envision and, and i think that part of that will probably involve what's happening at uh allen's with allen's old colleagues at apt and their possible return to formulary we believe that's forming and that Apt actually will be back on the grid next year, which is terrific for for the championship. Um, and then there's there's a lot going on at Maserati. Obviously, we think that Mortara is staying at Maserati, uh, but we think that that Lucas is possibly on the move there. Um, nothing nothing in relation to what happened in Monaco. I think it's a, a bigger picture sort of thing there. So yeah, lots going on. And then there's so many uh, interwoven other stories within within that. Uh, many of the other teams. I think officially at the moment the only teams, the only team that is confirmed next season is Jaguar with Evans and Bird. Um, but of course now we know that Van Dorn is is on the move, uh, but that that's expected to be confirmed later on in the summer. So lot lots happening, lots of things going on. I think the only the only thing I haven't heard is that that Alan is making a return to to racing and um, and getting stuck in himself there to to reprise some old. Some old greatness. Well, to be honest with you, I just made some notes on the open seats and uh, just sort of seeing if one of the old overalls would fit me. But I think those days might have passed by. You know. <laughs> um, now, talking of rumours, Alan, uh, here there was a meeting about the Gen 4 regs that you might have been at. Uh, could you tell us anything about that? <laughs> uh, just a hello and a cup of tea. Um, part of the... I think everybody's quite interested in what the future of motorsport's going to hold. And it's a changing time. Obviously, the dynamic of, uh, you know, the way that electrification is coming into the sport and from a manufacturer's point of view, and Audi's no different. Uh, they sit and look at all of the, the different options and the different things. But uh, right now, I think the majority of Formula E is focused on, on Gen 3. But if you are being very practical about it, 
even although they haven't necessarily started Generation 3 yet, uh, you timeline-wise actually have to start building Generation 4. And uh, if we remember back to at the end of the Gen 1 era, and Sam remembers very well, uh, Gen 2 was just being tested when Gen 3 regulations were being sort of put together. And uh, it does take these sort of wider timelines to be able to achieve the target because uh, that's uh, just the nature of the beast. But it was a good cup of tea. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I, you know, the, <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, pragmatic stuff there, but it's important with the way that electrification on the road cars is developing that, that formerly remains relevant. So I think they, the, the more discussions, the better, and that sort of thing, isn't it? Well, I think they, and your word there, relevant for me, is absolutely key. And that's key across all motorsports, actually, um, especially when you're looking at uh, the, the sort of high-end world championship level. It has to be relevant. It's got to be relevant to the people that's putting the money in, and it's got to be relevant to the fans. It's a very diffi- difficult juggling act, and uh, that's the you know the headache point sometimes. But the word relevance is very, very key. We can't be immune to everything that's happening in the world, and we've got to be a forefront of it, whether it be developing technology or, you know, as they do it in, you know, and as we found in championships like Formula E, where they just try new ways of putting a racing format together. And I think that's one of the exciting things, because it's an exciting time right now. Uh, it's big change, and big change brings big opportunity. Yep, it's all fascinating stuff, and we'll be keeping uh, an eagle eye out for all of that. Um, well, thankfully, we don't have a two-month break now for the next round, uh, so we'll be back with all the talking points from the Berlin E-Prix in just a couple of weeks. Uh, in the meantime, keep an eye out for all of uh, Sam's latest news on thehighfromrace.com, uh, and don't forget to check out the rest of our podcast output on Formula One, MotoGP, and IndyCar. Um, Alan, thank you very much for bringing all your in- expertise and insights, uh, and thank you all for listening. Goodbye. The Athletic.